I'm going to start this book with the conclusion, as we can then backtrack through some of my experiences to evaluate how the copyright system works and how people in the music industry use this to their advantage with new artists. This came about further to a telephone conversation with a music creator and writer called Rich Summers. The conversation, or the request for advice, reminded me of how and why copyright is such a thorny issue and one that catches most artists out when they are starting to think about recording their music and getting it into the public domain. It also again shed some light on how protective people are with their creations, as there is some part of them in the work, and any attempt at sharing is seen as a violation of their person. They essentially own it completely. In some respects, this is what I battled with in regards to my case against Sade, and we will look at that in later chapters. Back to my telephone conversation with Rich. Evidently, Rich had started working with a studio owner who was charging him a reduced rate for the recording, and was also getting involved in suggesting parts for the songs and changes. The work was starting to sound pretty good. I represent the artist, and I know what he is capable of with a song called Coyote Cries. That is a very classic blues Americana-sounding exploration of puberty that is brilliant in its present form. So I can understand how Rich can start working with some producer, and things start taking off. The studio owner approaches Rich with the idea that they should get some agreement down on paper in regards to the songs and future royalties. Rich was a bit concerned with this and sought my advice. I explained that as he had only paid for 50% of the recording and had already agreed to the studio owner co-producing his work and making changes, then the studio owner could claim 50% of the first copyright in the current recording copyright. Rich was as shocked as this as I was when my PII project tried to approach Moby's old label for royalties on a track we had written and produced for TME Recording in Nottingham in 1995. My answer at the time from Musicians Union solicitors was that TME Recordings had licensed the music to the label in the USA. Then they had the right to create the version they put out. EMT 2000, opposed to EMT 2295, and sell it and distribute it. What no one had done, though, was pay the artists involved or even notify them. As such, TME Recordings Limited had gone bust in the late 90s, and by the time I picked it up, we could no longer take them to court, as they had gone bust. Sound familiar? At the time, I was mortified, but learned all about first copyright and how the music industry works. It goes something like this. That famous producer likes what you're doing and invites you to record at his studio. You think, great, wow, working with a top producer. Any artist would take up the offer. So you go down and record. The producer adds bits here and there to your original songs. Maybe if he plays an instrument, he will add some music. Or maybe help you change some of the words in the bridge or chorus. 
is all sounding pretty good, something similar to what Sade did with Robin Millar at his studios in late 1983. The producer knows lots of music company people in the case of Robin Millar, and he was a royalty manager at a major record company. So the producer gets you some major record company interest, and a deal looks like it's coming your way. And then the producer wants a share in the action. Your manager might not be a professional, if you have one. And he takes advice from some music industry lawyers. Again, buyer beware. However, the advice that comes back to you is that the producer owns the recordings as effectively he paid for the recordings and produced the session, so he owns the first copyright, not you. Again, something that happened to Sade with Robin Millar. So do you decide to walk away from the deal or follow your dream? In Sade's case, the singer followed her dream and signed a solo deal.